Father in heaven, we're thankful today that we can spend some time together studying and just uh, thinking about what you would have us to think about. Lord, I ask that you would uh, bring what is needed in each of our lives and my life included as we consider the subject of witnessing in the marketplace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, since we have uh, just not so many here, I can. this was great because then we can figure out exactly what you do. I know you work in an academy setting and you work on the farm and so you interact with people in the public in that way and people there on your staff, right? And anything else I'm missing from that? That's pretty much it. And what, what led you here to the seminar? This one? Yeah. Okay, you're the director of a church outreach, which is the child care center, and how many kids are coming to that child care center? 200 kids. That's great. So you're interacting then with uh, all their parents. Some of them are probably church members, some of them are not. Okay, all your staff except one. Would that be you? Are not Adventists. And, and, how many, and how many staff do you have? Yeah, so that's a pretty good ratio for the kids. Excellent. So you have a prime... All 200 All 200 kids are not there at the same time or else you would be having some counseling here this weekend yourself. <laughs> a lot of work. Good. And then what's your context? Nurse at a surgery center. And are you... Uh, over managing some other folks? You're one among several, and are they mostly believers or non believers? Mostly non believers. Okay, good. What's your situation? Okay, so you're working with a bunch of physical therapists that don't have the full spiritual range of motion. Okay, good. And uh, where is that? In Maryland. Well, they need physical therapy there in Maryland. Um, and then what led you here? A nice title. Nice title. <laughs> okay. All right. No pressure with that one. I got to deliver on the title. And then what about you folks? Opportunities. Uh, ways of witnessing. Okay. Excellent. And what led you here? Ways of witnessing, and that's what led you here. Good. And what about yourself? Well, the good news is that I worked with a bunch of engineers in Wichita. There's just it's a whole city of engineers, and they all switched jobs from Learjet to Raytheon to Boeing. And so <laughs> they, uh, I've talked to many engineers over the years and had many in my church. And so within that context, um, hopefully I'll remember a few stories from that to tell about how we uh, we reached out and actually, uh, as I recall, we had a number of engineers, one, two, about four engineers that joined the church during the time I was there. One of them was an engineering student that actually then was the founder of Audioverse, who's taping this today. And now he has uh, mastermind Audioverse, which is reaching the whole world, but he came in through uh, witnessing to through engineers. So... Great. And then just a little bit about me. 
uh, for those of you who don't know me, which is probably all of you, um, I, I'm, I've done different things in life. Was, uh, I'm a third generation Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Wasn't always in the church. Left the church for a while, came back. And then I worked in healthcare um, as a registered nurse for about eight years. And in that capacity, you know, had some, I wouldn't say major management responsibilities, but minor ones. And, uh, and so that was a great blessing. Then I went into pastoring um, and working with, you know, within a community that had a lot of various professionals, legal professionals, engineering professionals, medical professionals, and they were all wanting to reach out to their, their, you know, the people within their circle of influence. Um, so I did that, and then the last five and a half years worked with an organization called Amazing Facts and led their evangelism school. And then just this um, January, switched over to work with Dr. Neil Nedley at Weimar Center of Health and Education, where we're attempting to use the health message to reach into all these various areas as well. So I might integrate a little bit of that. Some of you are in health areas, whether it be child care or whether it be physical therapy. And um, actually, interestingly enough, the engineers in my church were very much into health as well. And my prime, one of the people that was one of the primary witnessing folks in my church was an engineer who had had brain cancer and then through raw foods had survived and thrived. And this opened up all kinds of conversations with many, many different engineers. Then I had another engineer from Boeing that the same thing happened uh, with him, not brain cancer, but as a result of what happened to his health, it opened up all kinds of avenues. Okay, well, good. Good to get to know a little bit about you folks. And uh, we're going to look um, at a chapter today, the Bible, as our framework. And that's Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter, or actually Luke chapter 24. Luke 15 is a great chapter too. Um, but that's not what we're looking at. Luke chapter 24. It's interesting to me that, you know, there's all kinds of books that are coming out. I just put a couple up there on, on the idea that Christ was an excellent CEO or CFO or whatever they call him or a coach. And it is true that, you know, he took a, a group of untrained um, men and then he changed the world in one generation with those. The only person that was trained was Judas and he had the most problems with him. <laughs> um, and he's the only one that volunteered his services. Judas came and said, look, I'd like to work with you. And he was always trying to change Christ's way of doing things. And you know the key story is John chapter 5 and 6 for Judas, where he came to the Lord, and in John chapter 5, what had happened? Jesus had fed the 5,000. And they wanted to make him king. He said, man, this is great. And then uh, he refused to be made king. And it's at that time where Judas, 
spirit of prophecy tells us, he says, his mind just switched. He said, there's something wrong with this guy. He doesn't know how to take care of an advantage, take, take an advantage of a situation. And uh, she says that he, from that time on, he had great and growing doubts and questions. So uh, interesting uh, to study Christ as a, as a leader of ministry. So we're going to look here in Luke chapter 24. And as we look in Luke chapter 24, I think you're going to find some principles here that we can apply to the various contexts. And it might be helpful if you don't have the scriptures there to just read them um, uh, aloud with me so we can all keep kind of focused. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So you see the principle there already. What's the principle? The number one principle for any kind of real management that has the objective of spiritual influence comes down to something fairly basic. It's drawing near to people. And sometimes people are very nervous about you drawing near to them. And sometimes you have to be very careful about how you draw near to them. But uh, in this particular situation, he comes and draws near to them. And um, just a couple quotes from the servant of the Lord. By personal labor, reach the people where they are. Become acquainted with them. This work cannot be done by proxy. Now, what's a proxy? Someone else doing it for you. You know, don't hire someone else to come in. Well, we'll have just the evangelist come in. We'll have this or that. It's simply not going to work in your workplace. You're not going to hire an evangelist to come to the physical therapist office or to the engineering office, probably. It's not going to happen. It's going to be you, <laughs> if it's anybody. Come close to those for whom you labor, that they may not only hear your voice, but shake your hand, learn your principles, and feel your sympathy. Now think about that. That's not rocket science, is it? Hearing your voice, shaking your hand. Now, what do you think it means learning your principles? So what are your values? What drives you? What's your work ethic? What, you know, my wife is an architect. She worked with engineers and architects for years. And uh, the interesting thing about Luminitsa, if you see my daughter with me this week, and she looks exactly like her mother. Anyway, the interesting thing about Luminitsa was that she's an excellent architect, and her attention to detail was amazing. And her ability to spatially figure out buildings was something that uh, they didn't really understand in this particular company she was working for. It's fascinating. She got this job. Well, I got her the job. I got her three jobs in a row. I would go in and I'd talk about her like I'm talking about 
her to you. And they'd say, man, we need to meet this person. <laughs> and then they hired her. Well, anyway, in this particular job, she was working for a Candlewood Hotel Company, if you've ever seen Candlewood Hotels. And she designed a lot of those hotels. And then there would be these project coordinators who would go out, build the hotels. Well, they had something that they decided they wanted to downsize their team. And so they told her that they were not going to have her position anymore. She was, you know, she took it personally, of course. She came home and she was not, she was not so happy about that. And uh, I told her, I said, you, you don't realize that they made a huge mistake because you're so good. And she goes, oh, honey, I know you have to say that because you live with me. And I said, no, I'm not saying that because I live with you because you know that I also can be brutally honest. And so can you. But and I said, you're just very good. I said, look. If, if something's going to happen here, God wants you to do something, either something else, which he's getting you ready for, or just wait what happens. Three weeks later, her boss from that company calls up and says, you know what, we made a huge mistake. We now have gone through three different architecture firms, and we are not finding anybody that can do what you've been doing. Look, we are very sorry about what we have done. And you, you can come back either full-time you like, or if you can come as a consultant, and you can tell us the price that you would like us to pay. And so my wife says, well, what should I do? Should I just say the same thing? Should I just have them pay me the same thing? I said, absolutely not. You know, I think you should charge them three times the amount, and I think this and that. And I said, look, now, we have to make a pact right now because we're not doing this because we're not asking for more money because we want money, but because we're doing a church building project, we'll give all the money to that. And if they say yes, because she goes, I don't know if I want to go back there. I said, well, then make the price real high. Then you'll know how much they, they want you there. She did that. And they said, not only will you give you that, we'll give you $10 more an hour than you asked for. So $70,000 later, we were able to give those funds to the building project. But more than that, when the people, when she came back, she never worked on a Sabbath. She, anyway, just to make a long story short, the Lord just really blessed in that. The other thing was, was I watched my wife she knew how to come close to people. You know, not only was she a good architect, she's a good cook. And she would take these things into the, you know, to the break room, and these people would be eating this food, <laughs> you know, designed by Luminita. And I tell you what, they always looked forward to that. And I got a lot of Bible studies out of that. And that's another principle Drawing near to people doesn't mean you just have to do it all. You can have a team approach to that. My, my wife was like flypaper, and I came and killed the flies, or whatever. You know, we, we worked together. Man, don't tell my wife I said that. Could you re rewind that? <laughs> Maybe a better illustration. So drawing near to people. I don't know what your context is. I mean, in a physical therapy setting, people are always being drawn near to in terms of you know, doing those exercises and different things. In a cubicle, where people are working in cubicles, 
at an engineering firm, you got to create space maybe out of that because they'll just go in looking at their screens all day. How can they, how can you draw near them? You got to figure out what that is. Now, I worked in a nursing situation when I was a nurse, and I decided, how am I going to draw near to folks? I started baking bread. I didn't know how to bake bread. At first, when I started baking bread, it was a, um, yeah, it was more like uh, not bread. It was more like, you know, burned crackers. But once I got the formula down, man, people would line up for my bread. I drew near. This is very, this is not rocket science, you know. And uh, I would bring it in right after I baked it. And the smell would go throughout that emergency room. And I'm telling you what, they would line up. Now, not only that, I started delivering bread to my co-workers. They liked the bread so much at work that I started going to their place. And I'd start taking up stuff. And they were like, they were very happy to, to get that stuff. But then they started to develop a relationship that was not only in work, but outside of work. Um, and whatever context you're in, I think that this is very important. And it does, I would just say this, don't make it a theological reason that you're going to meet them outside of the work context. Don't start with that. That's not going to work in nine times out of ten, or maybe ten times out of ten. But if you're finding a way, you know, to meet their needs. I jotted down in my notes here a couple of, um, <laughs> where'd they go? <laughs> I, oh, wait a minute, I guess I went forward. Was I going forward all along then? Okay. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a story about, you know, when you get to their house, when you get into that, you know, what, what I did was at, the, at work, I'd find a way to draw near, and then I, it would go over to another context. Both my wife and I did that. And, uh, and then we would be able to minister to needs. Now, um, and it could be very simple things. Uh, that does, I'll tell you some more of those stories in a minute. Let's keep going. So, it is our practice of the principles we inculcate that give them weight. This is a second big thing of drawing near. When Jesus drew near to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, or any time, ultimately what won them was the way he really was. And there's only a few people in life that really know how you are, and one of those groups of people is the people you work with, because you're with them so much. How many of you are with the people you work with more than anybody else? I mean, some of, how many of you are with your family more than the people you work with? You know, I'm kind of both because we're working for souls, so we're always with both. But, um, yeah, they really will know. And they will see you in these contexts, uh, you know, within and, and also outside of work. Um, so living what you believe is very basic. But coming near to them is uh, so important. Now, there was another quote here. I don't know if I... Yeah, I think I did that. Um, by personal labor, reach the people where they are, become acquainted with them, can't be done by proxy. Sermons, money, can't accomplish it. Um, just can't accomplish it. So, um, living that. Let's go on. Verse 16, read it with me. Their eyes were 
restrained, so they did not know him. Now, what's the principle here? Is it always the best to just tell everything about yourself and all about your faith? Jesus here is dealing with these folks that are definitely disappointed and whatnot right now, but they don't know who he is. He doesn't go out of his way to tell them who he is or explain everything about who he is just to begin with. And I think this is a big principle. Um, I don't know, uh, in your context, what that means. Um, But what I've found is sometimes less is more. Although I always give people an idea of something that would, if they were watching, could help them out. Right? So... um, I still have many things to say to you, Jesus said, but you cannot bear them now. Um, I think one of the prime problems with witnessing is we think it's a, it becomes like a hit job. So, you know, you, you say, well, maybe my witnessing needs to be that I'm going to tell them about this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine. And because I'm thinking that they're not wanting to listen to me, I'll talk fast and quick, and then I'll, I'll almost feel embarrassed about what I'm talking about. How many of you understand what I mean? And that's just not going to work. Um, because they're going to they're gonna sense that you're nervous. They're going to sense that you're not really comfortable doing what you're doing. And that's not really you. Uh, you know, that's not really who you are. So... Um, I could give you so many examples of that, but this guy sounds interesting over here. Uh, There's not enough people here for me to preach like that. So we could be more interactive. (laughs) So uh, I think you have to have hooks, though. You have to have things. You draw near to people. Did Jesus have things in his life that got people thinking, you know, I really want to know something more about his faith? How many think that he might have had those kind of things? I mean, he's able to heal people. He's able to feed people. He's always sneaking off into the back room to pray. And he seems to come out with all kinds of power and and authority. He, he, He seems to have wisdom that no one else has. He's a very interesting guy, Jesus is. You know, what I really like is the fact that, you know, I got a book in my library called uh, they also taught in parables. It's a story of all the, all the parables that were told by the rabbis of Jesus' day. And the interesting thing is, he knew all of those parables. And in this book, it shows how he wasn't a plagiarist, I guess you could say, but he was using the parables, and then he would change the punchline. The rich man of Lazarus was one of those. That was a parable of that day. And there are many, many other stories. So, in other words, if he was alive today, which he is, but you understand what I mean, would he understand all the stories? Would he understand the different things that are going around? Would he know how to use the newspaper? Would he know how to say, wait a minute? You see what I mean? So, he was interested. He understood the stories people were hearing. He understood those different things. And in your context, how many think that's interesting that you have to do that? If you want to be effective. You never know how God's going to use it. But, you know, I'm always reading, reading, reading. When I go to some new city or town, 
I learn all the history of that town. I learn everything I can about that town. I learn about the person's business. I go to their website and this and that. And I want to know as much as I can. You know, I'm all, that doesn't mean I'm going to use it, but I'm, I'm looking. So, their eyes were restrained so they did not know him. I, I mean, this concept in witnessing is something that is almost opposite of what we normally hear in witnessing. We're usually told to just look like an in-your-face Jesus freak, right? Whereas this is more camouflaged, right? Now, I'll give you an example. The other day I was on a plane. <laughs> Part of my witnessing is like being on planes. And uh, I don't know, I decided to wear an 1844 shirt. It said, established 1844. Now, you're probably not going to use this in your office, right? Show up to work, new physical therapy logo, 1844. Um, probably not going to work. But anyway, I was wearing this shirt. And I go on the airplane. <laughs> this lady, uh, she's getting on the airplane, and my friend and I are getting on the airplane. And uh, I said, what number are you? She said, I'm 56. I said, you don't look like you're 56. And she kind of laughed. She goes, what number of you? I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 24. She goes, you certainly don't look like you're 24. It's a Southwest flight. So we were kind of laughing, you know, about that. And then she sees my shirt and she goes, why are you wearing a shirt that says 1844? Okay. I wore the shirt. So, you know, I'm in trouble because I wore the shirt, right? So I said, I said, you know, you don't know me well enough to ask me about my shirt. I'm not asking you about your clothes. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess it's okay. I did wear the shirt, but I gotta, you know, I'm not just gonna talk about 1844 on my shirt until I like. Uh, maybe you'll misuse the information. Let, so I started talking with her a little bit, and I said, you know, so where are you from? She had a little accent, and I said, are you from Iran? She goes, man, that's pretty good. I am from Iran, and I said, uh, let me ask you this: Are you uh, are you of the Baha'i faith? And she said, yeah, how did you even know about the Baha'i faith? And I was going, yes, she's of the Baha'i faith, right? How many of you have ever heard of Baha'i faith? So she goes, I'm of the Baha'i faith. I said, wow, so uh, tell me about that. What did that mean growing up and stuff? She goes, well, you know, we, uh, she started to tell me on Saturdays we, we would have like a day off, and then we'd, have, we'd listen to this. I said, really, on Saturdays? I didn't know that. And then... Uh, we couldn't eat. I said, what about your diet? Anything about your diet that you couldn't do? And I'm telling you the story to illustrate something. People love to talk about themselves, okay? So you, you, you can get all the information you need for them to witness to themselves if you ask the right questions. Uh, it's their job. to. The Lord can work on them in their own hearts. So anyway, I asked her, I said, tell me about that. She goes, well, we couldn't eat pork. I said, why not? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but they said no pork. I said, do you eat pork now then? She goes, okay, I do, but I always feel guilty. So I said, she goes, do you think I should eat pork? I said, well, um, you know, pork's not doing so well in the news these days. And uh, I told her all the health different things. She goes, oh, man, maybe that's why. I said, well, you know, uh, you know. You know, the, the Muslims don't eat pork either. She goes, I know. I said, now, isn't it true that the Muslims and the Baha'i didn't get along? Oh, that's very true. Oh, very true. And I said, and, and then I said, well, uh, you know, and she goes, and I have a problem. And I said, what's that? She goes, my boyfriend's Muslim. 
and I'm Baha'i. And I said, oh, that's bad. That's really bad. What if he turns on you? She goes, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about that. I'm really worried about that. I said, you know, you know historically what they did to the Baha'i people. That's probably why your relatives came here. That's exactly why we came here. She goes, man, you know a lot about this. And I said, well, you know, you know, this leads me to something I want to bring up. What's that? She goes, I said, did you know the Baha'i faith was established in 1844? She goes, what? I said, this is, I mean, I think my shirt is an excellent shirt to have been wearing today because it was established in your faith. She goes, no way. It was not established in 1844. Now, by the way, there's a principle. You need to understand all the people you work with, figure out what their faith is, and study up on everything about it. Know more about their faith than they do. Know more about their faith than they do, as, as much as you can. How many think that's true? And th th these are principles if you're going to reach people without alienating them. And, and what's good about their faith? Now, I would learned that not eating pork is big. I learned that she actually went to church on Sabbath or had a quiet time, which I didn't know about Baha'i. I knew already her, her religion was established in 1844, right? And then she tells me this. She goes, my boyfriend is Muslim, and I'm Baha'i, and I just don't know if it's going to work. So she has a need now. I said, well, what are you going to do? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, what about this? And what about if you have kids, and they're growing up, and they're different faiths, and what about this? And what? She goes, I know. What about when you, you know, get in an argument, and you're trying to look for an authoritative thing to help you with that? What are you going to do? I don't know. Then finally she says to me, what do you think I should do? Now, that is the key question, right? Until she asks that, I really have no business going down that road, yes or no? So I said, well, I tell you what. If I'm right that your religion started in 1844, would you allow me to give you a recommendation? She says, well, you're not right about that. I said, there's no way we can check it on this particular flight because they don't have internet. When we get to Denver, though, we're going to check it. And I, I'm not a betting person, but this, since this is not even a bet for me, I know this is true, I'm going to wager with you $10. You give me $10 if this is right. She goes, <laughs> I give you $100 if it's right. I said, $100 sounds good. <laughs> and my friend's with me. He goes, you're not, gonna, you're not betting with her. I said, this is not a bet. I know this is true. So we get there. And before I Google it, I say to her, look, you know, if this is true, I, 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 you're going to have to listen to what I say next. She goes, okay. So I put in 1844 Baha'i. Boom, comes up. 1844 was established the reason, she goes, I can't believe it. You're more Baha'i than I am. I said, I said, no, I wouldn't say that. And I said, so she goes, okay, so what are you going to tell me? I said, look, you got a problem. She goes, what's that problem? I said, well, you're, you're about ready to marry someone who's a Muslim. I'm worried about you. She goes, I am too. She goes, what do you think I should do? I said, look, we need to Google again and see if we can find a religion that has no eating of pork 
that has something to do with Sabbath observance, right? Or Saturday, taking a rest on Saturday. Let's put that in. You've got to have that. Look, you've got to have 1844 in there, right? She goes, I guess so. I didn't know that until today. I said, no, you've got to have 1844. That's going to really narrow down the, shirt, the search here. Because what we're going to find is, you know, that's going to probably be a factor that will help us narrow down. And so, you know, so I put it in there. 1844, no pork. And... Sabbath. What church came up? <laughs> Seventh-day Adventist church comes up, and she goes, what is that? And I said, well, let's read it on the website. So I'm reading it. Well, look at this. And, you know, they do this, and they do that. She goes, that sounds like a great church. That sounds like a church that would be like in the middle. I'm here. He's there. This would bring us together. And I said, oh, yes, it's, 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 it's good. It's a, it looks like a good church. He goes, well, why don't you join that church? And my friend, Dean, he goes, we are in that church. And I said, Dean, see, I was trying to hide myself, right? And she goes, you are? Well, why didn't you say that sooner? Well, why didn't I say that sooner? It would have turned her off. I could not have done that. Right? For some reason I knew I couldn't do that. But then she says this. She goes, man, that is so cool. You guys are the coolest people I've ever met on any plane. I said, you don't fly much, do you? She said, no, 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 I fly all the time. And, you know, I said, oh, you're always trying to get high. You know, I always joke with people a little bit. So, and then she goes, she goes, well, how would I find out more about this religion? I said, well, I go, where do you live? She said, I live in Miami. That's where I'm heading today, and I'm going to meet this oral surgeon, who's her boyfriend, and, and I was going to talk to him about all these issues. What do you think I should do? I said, man, I think you should go to the Adventist church. She goes, well, what will I say? I said, get marriage counseling from the pastor. <laughs> so then she goes, well, do you know anybody down there? I said, Dean, do you know anybody down there? He goes, actually, I lived in Miami most of my life. Where are you going? What, what's the closest street? And she, he goes, there's an Adventist church within 10 minutes of there. Hook the lady up with an Adventist pastor. Can you see any principles in that story? And I think this is the kind of thing that has to happen in our workplaces. And this goes on over time. I'll tell you a few other stories in, in, in work day conduct. But that was a compartmentalized one from a plane trip. But it was illustrating this principle Wait, where's my principal? <laughs> Their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Measure your approach, in other words. When you're witnessing to people, measure your approach. Don't just ram dump everything. Don't just say, all right. And you know what? I even feel, I mean, this can work. I had a friend who went around handing out 28 fundamental beliefs books. That was his witness. <laughs> he would say, Bang. Well, I'm not criticizing him because three people came into the church from his ministry. But that was not just my, that, that didn't seem like my kind of ministry. I wanted to have this measured approach, right? So that's number two. Now let's read on. Now behold, two of them were traveling, read it with me so I know you're still here, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem, 
And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now the point I want to bring out on this one, of course, is listen. Another point I don't, I, I didn't bring in this, but there's no better way to listen to people than go out walking with them. If I were you at your workplace, I would go out walking for people on break. You know, there's something about walking with people that really opens them up. How many of you have noticed this ever? Um, I got Catholics over there now. Um, <laughs> there's something with the, that's walking with people that helps. I think it's, it's because their their eyes are looking. At, and you know, the more they have to kind of look at this and that, walk over things, uh, it, the more it loosens them up. It kind of puts their guard down. And I'll tell you a couple stories about walking later. Remind me of those stories, okay? But on this particular thing, the reason you're walking is uh, what was Jesus doing as they walked? He listened in on their conversation, right? He listened while they conversed and reasoned. Now, how many of you have break rooms? How many of you can listen in on your employees and those that you work with? And you can just listen to them. Now, this is, and we're not talking about, you know, McCarthyanism here, where you're, you know, looking at their logs or their chat or different things. Um, I mean, it's, that can really kind of kill your witness if they find out you're snooping on their computer chats. Um, well, what do you listen for? What does the word conversation mean? You listen to their conversation. What's that mean? Uh, what's the root word of conversation? Converse or convert, really. So what are they talking each other into? What are they, you know, talking is one thing. Converting is another thing, conversation. And you'll hear people talking back and forth. What's important to them? Well, what about this or what about that? I am like the biggest snoop when I was working. and I, I just listened. I wouldn't say too much. Can you believe it? I didn't say too much. And I would just listen, 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 listen. Man, I would listen. Listen to their conversation. And, you know, what was the other part of the While they conversed, and they what? Reasoned. Now, this is very important too. Now just listen to what they are conversing about, but the reasoning processes. How many of you have ever listened to someone at work and you're going, I can't believe they're saying that. That's the most illogical thing I ever heard. Or you might say, wait a minute, I can now understand why they're acting the way they're acting. Now what I did immediately, so I would not forget these things, is I started to pray for people and their bizarre thought processes. So I would have a prayer list I would know a lot about people. I wanted those people. How many of you want your people you're working with to be in heaven? How many of you think you probably need to know what their thought processes are and their reasoning is to have them be in heaven? And they may need to be changed in certain ways, our 29 fundamental beliefs. But listening to that, I would see things to pray about. Well, you know, working with nurses, I'll tell you what, nurses like to talk. And being a male nurse, oh man, you hear all kinds of stuff that you probably shouldn't hear. And uh, I would just listen to it, you know, I'm, I'm mad at my neighbor, or I'm mad at this other girl on the other shift, and why did this shift always do this, and all that, and oh man, if you're ever working in a hospital, it's just crazy. And I would listen to it all. 
because I knew later on something's going to come up where I can say something at the right time. Okay? So it does take a little extra work, but I had a prayer list. And I would start praying for specific things in their lives. They didn't even know I was praying about it. But I just made the prayer list, list based on listening to them. Now, how many think God can work if you start doing that? Because he's the one who starts telling you what to do. The angels come and they'll tell you what to do. They'll tell you what to say. Uh, i got to break it to you. I don't know what to do. But God does. Right? And this frees him up because then you're, you're listening to their conversation and their reasoning. So notice this, what he says next. Verse 17, read it with me. He said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now what's happening? Is this obtrusive? Is this overwhelming? He's just asking what? What kind of conversation is this? And you look sad. So it's a question. It's an open-ended question. This is the key to not alienating people. Some of us like to make statements. I notice that you're an idiot in the way that you're relating to your, you know, whatever. Now, people don't need statements. Uh, they don't need declarations. Many times they already know what they're doing is wrong. But questions. Questions. Uh, I remember I went to Romania once. And I didn't know the language, but I wanted to witness. <laughs> so I asked my wife to teach me one word. You know what the word was? Dete. Why? Why? And I just went to the whole neighborhood, knocked on their doors, and I talked to them. <laughs> They'd invite me in, and I knew how to say a couple words. And then they'd talk for a while, and I'd just go, Dete. <laughs> and they'd keep talking. <laughs> and then I would say, Da. Da, hmm, valeo, which just means wow. And then the next thing, next pause would come, and I'd go, hmm, dece. And they would keep talking, talking. I came back, I left at like 9 in the morning. I came back at 4 o'clock at night in the afternoon. My wife goes, where have you been? I said, I've been talking to people in the village. What'd they say? I have no clue. Well, what did you say? Why'd you stay so long? I said, I just said... I said, how are you doing? And then I just started asking the question, why? And they talked, and all of them fed me. <laughs> you know, they gave me, like, some fruit and different things, and I just went from house to house. And then right at the end, I gave them a flyer that was all in Romanian, inviting them to my meetings in the evening. But only after I listened to them for a long time, you know. And guess what happened? They all came. Not all of them, but most of them came that night to the meetings, and they were telling my wife, oh, your husband is so funny. Oh, man, he's such a, it was so fun to talk to him. I said nothing. I don't even know what they were saying. <laughs> so the point here, in, and look, if I didn't even know what they're saying, but I'm asking a simple, how many of you think you could use the simple question? Why, why would you? Jesus did this. So, now, this, this assumes something else. You probably say, I don't have time to talk at work. Well, you're not going to really reach anyone if you don't have time to talk. You've got to make a priority of talking or communicating in some way. Uh, some of you, that's going to be hard. Well, well, I don't think, I don't like that. 
I tell you what, I worked with a group of emergency room physicians. No one was reaching that group. They were an unreached people group. They had like eight people. I just made it my business to get to know them and just talk to them and ask them questions. And before I left that hospital, three of them had accepted Christ and they were taking Bible studies just by talking to them. People are starved for people to talk to them just as people. You know, you don't have to have some big, huge, highfalutin thing to talk about. I want to talk today about the Greek in John chapter 6. No, please. I mean, Greek is great, but you understand what I mean? It's just basic things. And it's asking about what they're doing. So, he asked them what things. Oh, wait a minute. I guess, am I clicking this? I'm going ahead of myself. Cleopas answered and said to him, What? Are you the only stranger in Israel or Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? What's he doing here? He's asking another open-ended question. Now, those of you that are in the medical field, if you're taking a history and physical, this is a great thing, right? Diagnosis. Dia means through and gnosis means to know. And if you're going to get to the bottom of something, I just was with a physician in their office the other day, a psychiatrist, um, that I had taken someone to see. And he did an excellent job of interviewing this patient. I mean, it took like an hour and a half. But I just was in awe. I said, man, that was a beautiful way to figure out what was happening. And, and the more you listen, the better off you are in terms of witnessing. Okay? So how many of you, is anything I'm saying helpful to you? You know, this is not rocket science. But how many of you think that in your context you need to be maybe a little more deliberate about listening? And how about praying about what you're hearing without even telling them? These are just, I'm just saying. Um, and you know what? Make a list. Write down on the list what you're praying for and why. You're going to be amazed what happens with that list. Let me tell you what happened with me. I made this list, and uh, I would go swimming after work at the YMCA. And I would take my list, I laminated it, and I would pray over my list while I was swimming laps. You know, I'd say, I'm going to swim three laps for Johnny. <laughs> this was not like a Catholic thing. But I was like, I said, man, he needs a lot of prayer. So I would just pray about every angle. And as I was swimming and as I was praying for Johnny, God would bring all kinds of thoughts to my mind about Johnny. And that, so I'm conversing not only with Johnny, but I'm conversing with God about Johnny. Johnny doesn't know it. At all. I don't tell him I'm praying for you. If I tell him I'm praying for you, I'll tell you, in, in the hospital I learned this. If you tell someone, I told this one patient, you know I'm praying for you. Is it really that bad? That's what they said. They thought they were going to die. So I learned a lesson that you don't just use God talk, especially in your work environment. You know, you might say something like, you know, I've been thinking about your son, hoping things go well. Isn't praying thinking? How many of you think when you pray? If you don't, that's some kind of bizarre kind of prayer that we shouldn't be involved in, right? So, um, and I would say, I'm just thinking about that. Oh, well, thanks for the thoughts, you know. Now, later on, I might say, I'm praying for you. Ellen White says, pray for people and let them know you're praying for them. But she doesn't say you have to say, I'm praying for you. 
Okay? So this was the, uh, this is what happened with Johnny. Let me tell, I'll just finish the story with Johnny. Johnny was like the most anti-religious person. And uh, I read in the spirit of prophecy that those are the people you really have to go after. (laughs) Don't just say I'm not going to go after them. Because many times they're under conviction. If someone is very negative towards religion and they're bringing up stuff about your religion and those kind of things, and they're really hyper-negative, they're under conviction many times. So anyway, this is what happened with Johnny. I'm praying for him and everything else, and he's always like, he knows I'm a Christian, and he's always like making these jokes and comments. I'm not saying a thing. Then guess what happened to Johnny? Johnny's son got hit by a car. Ended up in the ICU and was hanging between life and death. And guess what? Guess who he called up? Me. I hadn't said anything. I had never gotten in his face or anything. I went to the bedside, and he said, would you pray for Johnny? Would you pray for my son, Johnny said. Guess what I took with me? My book. I've been praying for Johnny for three years. And I said, you know what? I've been praying for you for three years. He goes, you have? And I showed him the book. He burst into tears. His son died. But he came to church the next week and never stopped coming to church. I never said anything about, you see what I mean? I didn't say it. But I was praying. God was working. Right? And when he was ready, that happened. Now, you know, <laughs> there's other dynamics. Let's go on. Now, did Jesus know what had happened in the guy's life? Did he know that? Are there things you know about the people you work with? You know, he knew those things. So why did he ask what things? What's that? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who's who's more important to have talk? You or them? I mean, it seems counterintuitive, right? Since you have all the information they need, you think, right? It's kind of like when I was rock climbing once. I went rock climbing and. Uh, I was going over this overhang, or coming over this overhang, and I had to climb around it. And the person I was climbing rocks with said, don't lean in towards the rock. Lean back so that your, your shoes will hold. And, and trust the rope. Trust. That was so hard for me. I'm going like this, and pretty soon I just tried to get close to the rock. Guess what happened? My feet slipped out. I was swinging 100 feet above the ground. I was like, and I never climbed a rope so fast in my life. But this is the this is just it's counterintuitive. You kind of go, well, wait a minute, I need to talk. No, 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 no. Sometimes you don't. Just asking those questions. Um, so what did the answer that he received reveal? Okay, so our number five was be aware of everything by asking what things. Um, what did the answer he received reveal? Let's read it. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and 
word, did they believe in Jesus? They had to believe. Not only deed, a word, but also what? Deed. Before God and all the people, and now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, what's it say next? We're hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What had their answer revealed to, to uh, Jesus? What's that? A lack of faith? Confusion? Lack of understanding? What else? Disappointment? What was in their heart? A great interest. They hadn't really fully understood what the Old Testament said. It, un- it really underlined their thinking, their emotions, and what else? Their, their faulty thinking. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a fellow work person just share something you know is faulty? Right? Or your, or your whatnot. So, notice what Jesus does. Um, you know, he, he now, now, this is the good thing now, because now, remember, I, I think this is a principle. If you give people long enough, they'll witness to themselves. They'll tell you what their problem is. They'll articulate it. You don't have to articulate it. They'll tell you. Right? Um, you know, Dr. Nelly and I work with all kinds of depressed people, and, it, and we do cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's ABC thinking. Is the activating event matching with the, the, uh, the consequence, or is the belief kind of, you know, messed up? So what was the activating event of their problem? Jesus had died, and what was the consequence, they thought? No hope. It's all over. I mean, this is a distortion, right? And it was based on a faulty belief. They didn't understand, right? So you want to come to this moment with people. This is witnessing. Now let me say something else about this witnessing in the marketplace. There are so many things you can talk about besides the 28 fundamental beliefs that are related to the fundamental beliefs. You can talk about their music. <laughs> you can say, why is it you like that music? What about this? What about that? You can talk about different things. You can talk about their relationships. You can talk about their kids. You can talk about forgiveness. You can talk about anger. You can talk about bitterness. You can talk about anxiety. You can talk about all kinds of things. And what I always try and do is, I, and this is the same thing I do in board meetings. Not that board meetings are like witnessing, but... <laughs> Sometimes they are. I try and find out what are the small victories that could be won to gain confidence in this meeting? What can give us momentum to get to the bigger issues that are come later? You know, Rudolph Giuliani, I'm not saying I'm a fan of his, but he wrote a book on leadership. And he was in New York City, and he took over New York City, and guess what he did first? He got everybody organized from the different places of the city and so they're all in the same room at the same time. And he said, okay, there's one problem we're going to attack in all of your parts of the city. 
graffiti. Everybody sees the graffiti. They see it everywhere. We're going to attack it. We're going to have surveillance cameras. Anytime graffiti comes up, it's taken down within a certain amount of time. People are prosecuted that are doing that. It will show a measurable change in the city. Everybody will say, what happened to all the graffiti? No matter where they go, it's all going to change. And so that's what he attacked. Very simple thing, graffiti. And guess what? He got that done. And then guess what happened next? He moved on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So in your witnessing with people, look at all of them one-on-one and say, what are the small things right here that I need to, to do to win their confidence in that particular situation? Does that make sense? And you can't just witness to everybody at work. You're witnessing to people, to people at work, you know? And you got to, I try and witness to the leaders if I can. So I get them on my side, you know, I'm going for the chiefs because they got a lot of Indians that follow them. Is that right? Trickles down after that. Trickles down after that. (laughs) ABC thinking. Uh, It revealed also their emotions. One of you said that. We were hoping. We were hoping. So what can we learn from Christ's approach? Which is better? We already said this. Is it for you to tell people their problems or is it for people to tell you their problems? Right. B. That's right. Two ears and one mouth. Oh, this is so true. So as a result of his problems, what is then Jesus able to do? Or as a result of their problems, what's he able to do? Well, he's patient. Very patient with him. Now, that's the other thing. How many of you have worked in your current job for more than five years? More than ten years? All right. Yeah. You know, what I have found is some people come in rapidly to understanding the truth and wanting to follow it, and some people it takes years. But patience. There are certain cardinal things you don't do. Like this music. You don't play that next to my seminar. Uh, <laughs> what seminar is that? Uh, it's the music seminar? Uh, who put me in this room? Who are the people that put me in this room? <laughs> Was that you? <laughs> oh, by the way, you know, I, I'm very careful about how I talk to people about their music when I'm witnessing to them. I like to talk to them. Say, Why do you like that song? Why do you like those lyrics? What about this? What about that? I like that. But I'm very careful not to condemn it necessarily right out of hand, you know. Anyway, okay, let's go on. Diagnosis of the issue. Now, finally, he's got this relationship with them. How long has he known these people? For their respective, he's a stranger, but how long has he really known them? Yeah, he's known them forever. He's known them for at least three and a half years, right? He's known them a long time. And so he says this to them. Oh, fools... And slow of heart, not to believe in all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter in his glory. Now, why in the world? How many think that's probably not going to work at your office? But is there a place and a time for that kind of conversation? When is that? When is that time? Yeah, when they trust you is one answer, but what's the other answer? Look back here at this other thing. Uh, What's it say? You know, we were, we were hoping. 
So they're at a place of complete hopelessness. And that, there's two, two times to, to talk really directly with people, at least. One is what? When they're in a crisis, and if they don't continue, they might do something very stupid. Because they're hopeless. Who knows what they're going to do? Right? I mean, Judas got hopeless without the Savior, and he killed himself. Peter was hopeless too, but the first thing Jesus did after he was resurrected, according to Mark, was what? Go tell the disciples and Peter, because he realized he was right on the edge. So there is a time to be direct. When I got married, my great uncle who married us said, you know, Don, never yell at your wife unless there's a fire in the house. You know, and that's good counsel. So, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, diagnosing the issue, he calls them a fool. What's a fool? The uh, fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Let me ask you a question. Can a, uh, can a fool know better? And if they can't know better, then they're not really a fool. They're, you know, they've got some mental issues, right? They're, they don't have the capacity to run the program. But a fool, you call someone a fool because they could have known better. And, and did he know that they could have known better? Because they gave all the, the, their reasoning and whatnot. Um, and was it wise to call a person a fool? Like we said, only in particular times. Now, calling someone a fool or foolish in some particular area of life it's something I found, you know, is important, important to know how to do. And it's actually something that is part of a witnessing technique. And I don't say technique, it's got to be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, let me see if I can give you some examples of this in uh, situations where, um, where I was witnessing well, I was working in the emergency room, and I was, there was this guy, he was a, a physician, and he was very mean to patients and nurses, female nurses, not to me, since I'm so muscular. Don't laugh, I used to be. So this guy was just, he was just above the pale. I didn't know what to do. But I remember one day, he was dripping betadine in a patient's eyes. This guy was, you know, he was bad news. And I got so upset. And I told him, I said, that is, he, he, you know, I, I told him, number one, stop that. Number two, um, I'm, I'm going all the way to the top with this. You're completely out of line. You've got some serious problems yourself. Well, talk to me about this patient and that he doesn't pay money and he's this and that and all the stuff he was saying. Has nothing to do with this person. You are a complete idiot, basically, is what I told him. And I told him that in front of everybody. And he just looked at me, and he didn't say anything. He just walked away, and he came to me, maybe out of fear <laughs> at this point, but he came to me, and he says, no, I need to talk to you. And he told me, he said, that was the best thing you could have said to me. I was completely wrong. I've completely lost my moorings, and I need help. Now, everybody knew he needed help. But for him to admit that was a big thing. 
And he went and he apologized to the patient. He apologized to everybody else. And not only that, he followed up. He invited me to his house. And he says, you know, for years I've done these things. I've, I've been tempted to that and I've done it. No one really stands up to me. But I'm thankful that you did that. See what I mean? So there are times for that. Does that make sense? And I've seen that happen a number of times uh, in witnessing. And you just tell people like it is. Finally, at that point, you've got to tell them like it is. I would have turned him in. He didn't need to be there. Uh, he certainly didn't need to be there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, the tone of voice is big. So what does it mean to be slow of heart? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. What's that mean? Not to believe. What's that? Yeah, you know, that's the Greek word bradycardia. Did you know that? It's bradycardia in Greek. For those of you in the medical field, that means slow heart. So he is basically saying, you're fools. And you're, you're so far gone that your heart has slowed down to the place that it might even stop. You're hopeless. And he's saying, you know, how does the heart work? You've got your lub and your dub. You've got the top and you've got the bottom. You know, where the top part tells the bottom part what to do. He's basically saying your heart is almost stopping. You're not a normal sinus rhythm anymore. You're getting slower and slower. You might even be like a junctional rhythm. You're about ready to get a, you're going to basically you're going to tank. And it's at that time he says, you fools, slow of heart. He's very, very direct. Very direct. So before you make a diagnostic statement, what do you need to know? You need to know the facts. You need to know everything that's going on. Did Jesus done his homework? And did he know what was happening? In other words, when you're witnessing, be complete with people. Really, really look at the situation and you've got time, you know, you've got, well, act like you, pray like you don't have any time, but act like you have all the time, I guess would be the way I'd say it. Um, you, know, uh, you know, when do you be direct and not? Let me just tell you a story about that. When I was leaving one church that I was in, I was uh, 28 years old when this happened, and I'd been working with the same people for five years. I knew I was going to leave and not come back because I was going to a church, another church in Kansas. So you know what I did? I wrote them all letters that were personalized letters. I told them how I'd been praying for them and told them the different things that were on my heart for them, and I invited them to church. And I invited them to church for a special day. Now, this is a good idea for you guys, too, because I've seen it work in different contexts. And it was a day of appreciation for them. So I said, look, you serve the community in this particular floor of the hospital, and nobody really even knows you. I want you to come, and I want to have a day that honors you and tells what you do for the community. Would you come and be my guest? Guess what? They came. <laughs> Forty-six people came to church that day. Forty-six people. I've, and I'd worked there five years. And I, I tried to also invite them in a lighthearted way. I took a picture of myself, which of course is lighthearted, and I put that picture in a frame, and the frame was an unusual frame. It was a bedpan. So here's this bedpan. There's my picture in the bedpan. And the title of my message that day 
after we did the honoring for them was bedpans and his plans. And I basically shared my personal testimony about how I'm nothing. I'm like the contents of a bedpan. But how God worked in my life through them, their ministry and told about what they had done. In the, in the Sabbath school time, we told about what they had done, what they do for people in the community. We gave them, I gave them all gifts. And then I had that message. Now, this was an amazing thing. Now, this came to me. Why did I get the idea of bedpans and his plans? Why, this was a very, I had a teacher who had on her wall, she was a nursing teacher, she had a picture of a bedpan. Not a picture, an actual bedpan was hanging on her wall. And I went into her office one day, and she, I was being disciplined, which was normal for me in school. And I went into her office, and you know what she said? I said, why do you have a picture of a bedpan? Which was the reason she put it there, so people would ask that. And she goes, this is your highest calling as a nurse. And I was like, oh, great. Uh, now I know why I went into this, my highest calling. What do you mean? She said, the most vulnerable moment in someone's life where you're able to minister to them, and you do that in a, in, in, in a graceful way that does not alienate them and has them keep their human dignity, that's going to show whether or not you're really a nurse. That's going to show whether or not you're really a Christian. And that stuck with me. So when I had that sermon, I picked that, bedpans and his plants. And the people came, and at the end of the sermon, I gave an appeal I just told my testimony about how I'd come to know the Lord. They'd seen it happen. And when I made that appeal, I mean, most all of them responded to the appeal. There were, um, you know, there were three physicians that responded to that appeal. And you know what they all said to me? Why didn't you talk to us this way sooner? Why didn't you talk to us this way sooner? Now you're leaving and you can't follow through with this. And one after the other told me, I would really have liked to study the Bible with you. And guess what? It would have been better for me to stay because nobody else really knew them like I knew them. So there's a tension between this directness and not. I don't know what to tell you about it, but what I learned from that when I became a pastor, you know what I told people? I told them that story and I said, I want to go to work with you at Boeing. So I go with the engineers to Boeing and I'd say, I'd, I'd say look, how can you show appreciation for these people? What can you do? Some of them found unique ways, and they drew their fellow employees into it. One of them, they said, look, the, the, one of their engineering friends was a, was a big, tall guy, and he was very overweight, and he was going to have a heart attack. And he just told him, I'm worried about you. Come for this cooking school. This guy lost 60 pounds, saved his life. He joined the church. So they found ways you understand what I'm saying? I don't know what that is for you. But there's also unique people groups. I mean, you guys know the, 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 the language of physical therapy, of engineering, and you know how to say things in a way that nobody else knows how to say. So what I would do with my members was I'd say, you invite your members to your, your friends, and you either tell me, help me with a sermon that can help them, or you preach it. You understand what I'm saying? So try and work with your, your pastor or whoever. Um, I guess the point is, be complete 
in your work, but then do something about it. If you've been there five, ten years, and they know your principles, they know your sympathy, they know who you are. Now look, don't do this if you've been an idiot at work. No one's going to come and you're going to be embarrassed. It's like the people you know, come to me and say, well, I'm going to lose my job if I join your church. And I say, well, how, are you a good worker? And they say, no. I say, yeah, you're probably going to lose your job because you've been an idiot. I don't say that, but you know, you know, you, you're probably going to do that. But if you've been, if, if they've seen your principles and whatnot, they're going to respond to that. That's the point. At the right time, like we said, be direct. And there is a time to be direct. Even though Jesus was very direct, what also did he include? He included the solution. At the same time he was direct. Don't ever be direct with people without giving the solution to their pollution, which is dilution. It's, you know, I know civil engineers wouldn't like me for that, but the water of God's word. So look at what Jesus does. What was the solution? Christ died so he could enter his glory and so that we could be saved. This, Jesus said, is what the prophets taught. Then he proved what he had said to them. He proved what he had said to them by doing what? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, let me ask you a question. Are you a good Bible student? Are you constantly studying God's word? And the only way you're going to be effective as a witness at work is if you're doing that. That's the only way, because there's no way he can bring things to your remembrance if they're not there, right? Let me tell you something else at work. I've just remembered this. When I was working in this busy emergency room, I thought, how am I going to reach everybody with the message of Revelation? I wanted them to know about Revelation. So guess what I did? I decided to memorize the book of Revelation. And I also was in a class at the seminary where I was supposed to take the book of Revelation as a class. So I put the entire book of Revelation on cue cards. And I put on one side the text and the other side the verse, you know, where it was from. And I handed them out to all my, my work associates. I said, look, I need your help. Would you help me with something? What's that? I'm taking a class on the book of Revelation and I don't I'm not very good at memorizing things, and if I associate things with people I know and whatnot, I think I might be able to remember the text and different things. So I handed out all the texts. And I said, I'm handing these out randomly, but i got to tell you the truth. They weren't random, uh, for one of them at least, because there was this lady that worked with me. Her name was Judy. <laughs> she was the meanest lady ever. So guess what text I gave her from the Revelation? The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the rim of her seed. <laughs> so I gave her that text. And she's like, she goes, well, what's the text you have to memorize with me? <laughs> you should have seen the look. You should have seen the look on her face, you know. And so every time she, and, and you know what? I instantly remembered that text. It really did help me memorize it. And, and then I'd say, every time I came up to these people, you know, at work, and it was fun, okay? It was fun. You guys are laughing. It was fun <laughs> because they'd come up and they were supposed to hold up their card for me whenever I had a break between patients. And then I would say the text to them. And guess what happened? They memorized all the texts. They knew the text before I did. And then they were like, we were going back and forth, and they were, you know, and, and, and it wasn't over the top. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, but it was funny. 
And then guess what happened? This was a, I don't know what it would work in your context, but it did in mine. You know what they did? Next. They said, what do you think they said to me? What does that mean? What does that mean? And guess what happened out of that? I had 10, 15 Bible studies. And guess who had asked me the question? They were asking the question. I wasn't making, you see what I'm saying? They were asking the question. I don't know if that could work in your, your environment or not, but this was what worked in mine. I mean, it was amazing. Then I've shared that with other people, and they've tried it in their workplaces, and guess what? It works. The other thing I found is, um, in terms of offering the solution, I would take my Bible with me to work. I might not ever open it. I might not ever see it. It wasn't a big, I didn't like take my family Bible, you know. It was a tiny little Bible back then when I could read those. And it was a tiny little Bible, and I would just set it down on the table. At break, I might look at it a little bit. Didn't try and look like, I didn't talk about it, but I look at it, and guess what happened? Just from that. They'd ask me questions. They'd ask me questions about what do, you, what do you think God's Word says about They'd ask those questions. And it was amazing. And then just because of my Bible, it was right there, people from around the hospital would start coming to my, I was doing a triage, I was a triage nurse, and they knew if I was a triage, in between patients I might have some time, and they'd come down and they'd start asking me questions about it. So, is there a law against you bringing your Bible? No. Is there a law sometimes against, the, will people say you can't talk about it? Yeah. But I never talked about it unless people ask a question. Um, another thing, I tell you what, in, in, in my work environment, I have learned all the health problems of the people I worked with. And then guess what? One of their biggest health problems in this particular place I worked was, and 98% of male nurses do this, and they smoke. They all smoked, and they'd all go out for break. They all were smokers, and guess what? Now, this was a kind of being direct moment. I, I timed how much each per person smoked. I was very complete. I knew exactly when they smoked, and I watched it. What I found out was, this is my research, I found out they smoked at the same time. They would take breaks at the same time. They would smoke in the same place with the same people. They would actually like have their cigarettes the same place. And then when they drove into work, they'd come the same way because I followed some of them. And I watched them smoking. And they would, they would, their cigarettes would be completely done. They knew how to titrate that dose right when they got to the ER and they, they had it perfectly planned. They knew where the lights were and everything. And I looked at this, and this was amazing. And, this, and the head nurse smoked. She was like, you know, she was in charge of everything. And I was like, man. But you know what? They were way, they were, I can't remember the numbers, but it was an inordinate amount of time, extra time they got to have breaks because everybody knew if they don't smoke, we're going to all be sorry because they're going to be very irritable. And I was like, this is wrong. I mean, look, I mean, they've got, they're getting an X, it was twice as much break as I was getting. That's it, twice as much. And I had it logged. I mean, I knew. I, I knew. So I went into Lori, who was ahead, and I said to her, I want to deal with a terrible disparity that I've discovered here at work. 
and one that I think if you were to learn about, you would be as upset as I am or even more. She goes, what is it? <laughs> and I drew it on for a while. Then finally I said, it's smoking. Tell her that. <laughs> and she goes, well, what do you want to do about it? That was how good my research was. And I said, this is what I want. I just want equal time, okay? I'm not asking you to stop smoking or anything like that. I'm asking for equal time for my break. She goes, that's fair enough, because she saw my papers of documentation. She goes, well, what are you going to do with your equal time? I said, I'm going to run a stop smoking clinic, and I think we could save the department this many hours, and this is how much money it would be worth and all that. And she goes, that's a great idea. <laughs> so she let me run a stop smoking clinic, and guess what? She stopped smoking. Five or six people stopped smoking. So I had found an angle. They didn't like smoking. I mean, they did, but they, didn't, they knew it was bad, and they wanted to stop. See what I mean? So this won a lot of confidence with them. So um, be complete, offer the solution. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, uh, do we need to know how to, how to peep, how, help people see Jesus and also the answer to their problem in every part of the scripture? The only way you're going to be able to know what they need from the scriptures is to do everything I just told you before now. But you need to not only put them on their prayer list, but what else? Be studying what the answers are for their particular situation, even if they're not asking you. Because guess what you're starting to do on their behalf? You're claiming the scriptures on their behalf. You're also, you're ready for that moment when they ask you. You're ready for that. So what do you think about he said himself as he went through the books to them? What do you think he said in Genesis? What do you think he said about himself to those people in Exodus? What do you think he said about himself in Leviticus? You know? You know? He went through the entire scriptures concerning himself. Could you do that? You know, Genesis, I'm number one. Exodus, I know, you how, to get, I know how to get you out of here. Numbers, I'm number one again. <laughs> you know, Deuteronomy. I'll give it to you the second time. Leviticus, I'm the, I'm the sacrifice. Joshua, that's my same name. Jesus, judges, I am going to be the judge and I am the judge. And uh, I am a faithful judge because I've lived through everything that you went through. Ruth, I'm, I'm your Boaz. First and second Samuel, I'm David. All the way through, just go through all the scriptures and figure out what they say. Now here's a ministry of healing talks a lot about this. Read this. The physician has precious opportunities for directing his patients to the promises of God's Word. Everybody has opportunities, not just a physician, no matter where you work. Opportunities. Let him study the Word of God diligently that he may be familiar with its promises. Now, that's memorizing them. Let him learn to repeat the comforting words that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry. And I'm starting to do that right now. I'm going through all the Gospels and I'm saying, what are the comforting words that he spoke? And we're, I'm memorizing all those. I'm going to be teaching my students in my health school to memorize all of those. So we know those comforting words. And when giving lessons of healing the sick, he, he should talk of the works of healing wrought by Christ, of his tenderness and love. Never should he neglect to direct the minds of his patients. It should be... <laughs> 
I was writing this out here when I was at my parents' house. Uh, Minds of his, his patients to, the, to, to Christ, the chief physician. So, man, this is, you know, I'm going to tell you something. If you want to have a great book on witnessing in whatever place you work, read the book Ministry of Healing. And just read it from the context of your context. Every single page, I mean, not to show you, every single page as I read it, there's something worthwhile. Something worthwhile. And it will, I'll give you an example. I was reading in Ministry of Healing a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, and I said, all right, it says I should sing to people, and that's a great form of witnessing. And I like singing. So I took some friends with me, and we decided we're going to go out and find people to sing to in this community. <laughs> I know this is a little over the top, but we go out, and guess what happened? We start singing to these, these people, and it's amazing. They start, I guess my microphone went dead. All right, you can still probably hear me. You got another battery? Oh, it's over time. What time is it? Okay, what time are we supposed to go to? Sorry about that. I'll finish the story and we'll quit. All right. So I just started singing to these folks. Now, guess what happened? They asked me, why did you come to sing at my house? I said, look, I'm not at liberty to share that. <laughs> and we just sang to them. And then I said, how am I going to get around that? Because I knew, and, and I said, you know, your name was suggested to us by who? I said, look, this is anonymous. And then I got through singing. They liked it so much, they said, I said, who would you like us to do this to? And guess what they said? They all had someone for us to sing for. Like this one lady said, that man across the road is the meanest man around. I want you to sing for him. <laughs> she came out, got out her chair, and watched us as we went over to sing to him. And the man was just floored. He couldn't believe it. And we didn't tell him who told us to sing for him. But amazing things started to happen. Then we sang in front of the supermarket. And then the kids I was singing with, they got invited to three or four churches. This caught on, and our academy students, they said, well, this is cool. They were going door to door. And guess what happened? This one lady said, she, they sang for her at the door, and she just was in tears. And they said, well, did you like that that much? She said, yes. And they've been knocking all these doors, and they've been getting rejected. They said, well, look. This neighborhood we're not having success with, but we have all our instruments because we just went to this place to play. You mind if we bring our instruments to, to everybody to play for you at one time? She said, that'd be great. So they got their violins, they got their bass files, they got their cellos, they had the whole orchestra come, and they set up the whole orchestra in a lady's backyard. And they played this music. You should have seen the neighbors. They looked at everybody coming around, and guess what happened? They all came down the street to hear the concert. And then they said, who are these people? She goes, I don't know. They just came to my door and they just, they sang to me and they did this music to me. And they go, and they ask, well, who are you? They said, well, we're the guys that knocked on your doors and you didn't let us give you Bible studies. And then like you know, a whole bunch of them said, well, we want to know more about, you know, your school and they got Bible studies. The point I'm making by this is I just followed that little simple concept of singing to people and Ellen White said to do that. And it worked. My point with you is, when you read this kind of a book, I like Ministry of Healing especially because it's not a compilation. When you read this, 
it will help you witness where you are. I wish I would have read this years ago, the way I'm reading it now. And the way to read it is not just to read it, to dread it. That means to do it and read it. <laughs> New word, dread. Just go out and do it. That's the point. Yeah. No, you know, this is not a random book. I, I did that particular thing because, yeah, yeah, I did random things, but then guess what? We got more sophisticated because I knew what people were going to say at the door. And we, we would assign people so that when they went out, they said, we were assigned to come and sing to everybody on this street. Well, who assigned you? Well, listen to us sing, you know. And then we, We've gotten uh, this Lutheran pastor's wife. We went to sing at her house. And she was so blessed. She goes, I've got all these members that could really benefit from this. So she sent us to sing to her members. And uh, another place they went, they said, this lady's, this man, so can we sing? She, he goes, well, would you play my, this piano in my house? And they, so they went and they played the piano. She said, well, my wife died. And this was her piano. And I, every time I look at that piano, he was just weeping. And he gave them $250 as a donation and said, you know, I want to know where your campus is and more about you. So anyway, it works when you follow what's in these books. Let me finish up. Make it personal. Jesus shared, he did so in a very personal way. It says, it says he shared the things concerning himself. I can't underscore this enough. Sharing your personal testimony is really makes a difference. Now, this doesn't mean it's some kind of like canned way. There's all, part, all kinds of parts of your personal testimony. And you, you don't want to share some of them unless you, you really are supposed to at certain times. But this is, uh, this is the point. Uh, and of course, your basic testimony is my life before Christ, how I met Christ, my life now. Know when to leave. Jesus gave that amazing Bible study, and it says they drew near the village, whether they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. This is very important in witnessing, especially at the workplace. Witness to the point you know they're listening, but stop before they wish you would stop. And how many of you know how to tell that? It's kind of an art. You've got to learn that. It's got to be discerning. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help you, but less is always more. I wish I could talk more about this now. I can't. And then they'll say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm, no, we do that later. See what I mean? Because then it does, you don't look over anxious. You know, <laughs> very important, uh, I think, concept. Now came the past. He sat at the table with them, leave with God's word ringing. Uh, he took bread, blessed and broken, gave it to them. That's hospitality. We could talk about that. When they got, he got through, he said, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And we opened the scriptures with, we try and leave with God's word burning in their hearts. Something about God's word burning in their hearts. You know, Spurgeon once visited this family and they were very, very nice to him and everything. And he said, how am I going to reach these people? They, they're in love with the bright side of darkness. They, they like the wealth and the glitter of the world. They're very kind people, but they're not really serving the Lord. So he took, the lady had left her diamond, diamond ring on the table where he was staying. He took that diamond ring and wrote on the windowsill, one thing thou lackest. You know, sell everything and give to the poor. So they, they didn't know the Bible that well, but they saw this one thing thou lackest written on the windowpane. They searched their whole Bible. They found it and they read the story. And that Bible text changed their life. They were very angry at him at first, but then they realized, you know, there is something we do lack. 
and they gave their hearts to the Lord. So God's word is more powerful than your story, really, ultimately. But your story, as it's related to God's word, is also very powerful. 13, and it's like, a, it's like a defibrillation is basically what they're saying. When they heard God's word applied to their specific situation, their heart started again. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were there gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road. So they shared what had happened. They began to witness. They rose up that same hour and they began to, uh, to witness. So that's the sign of a good study. The sign of a good study is when somebody listens to what you said and they tell someone else. I noticed some of you taking notes. That means you thought it was a good study or you're just trying to be kind. But Jesus, when he got through teaching and preaching, guess what happened? His disciples wrote down everything in the four Gospels. They said, that's good stuff. And, you know, um, I sometimes do that with people. I used to just hand them the study when I'm studying with them. But now what I try and do is just study out of God's Word. And at the end of it, I can always tell if it really hit because how can I get a copy of that? Or, you know what I mean? Jesus, he was so effective, there was the four Gospels. Paul was so effective, there were all the epistles. Ellen White was so effective, there's the Conflict of the Ages series, and there's the Testimonies. How many of you want to be so effective for God that people want to write down what you're saying because God's in it? And, and that's, uh, I think, uh, you're a living epistle known and read by all men, but um, constantly we want to have this happening. The focus was then on the Word, you know, how they open the Scriptures to us. And I think uh, if you're known as a godly person at work by all these nonverbal things you do, and uh, you're going to be known as a person that opens the Scriptures and applies it. And there's no one more valuable to a person than that. It helps them so much. Make disciples. What happened? They went and they told the other people, basically. And uh, they then became, it says... Um, you become witnesses of these things. And witnesses begin to be established out of your workplace. You get other people that are working there. And one of the most exciting things to me has been to see people that I've been working with come in and then they start to bring other people in to the Lord. There's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more exciting than to see that. And that's what happened in Jesus' ministry in three and a half years. So let me ask you this question. You may not have another day to work with the people in your workplace. I don't know. We need to, we need to work as though we, we don't have another day. But also, what about a three-and-a-half-year plan? When I was a pastor in my church, you know what I told people? We're going to have a three-and-a-half-year plan of discipleship. Jesus worked with 12 people for three-and-a-half years. But ultimately, what led to their conversion was his death. And guess what's going to lead to people's conversion in your context? It's your death to self, at least. And this is going to lead to conversions. I had a student at AFCO. I'll end with this story. His name was Cass. And Cass came to AFCO against all odds. He had had some, a brain tumor. He was taking multiple medications. I told him he couldn't come. He started calling everybody, and he got in the class. This guy, I thought, is a disaster. 
But then guess what happened? He started cooking food for all of his sweet mates. He started doing acts of kindness. Halfway through the class, he came to me and says, I have a terrible headache. And I knew that he probably had this brain tumor that might be coming back. And uh, the headache went away and came back. But guess what? He had the sense that he was going to die. And so he said, look, I want to witness as much as I can because I don't have that much time. This changed the whole dynamic of the class. One time it was raining torrentially out. I said, we can't go out today. And guess what he said? I'm going to go out because I don't have that many days left. Everybody was home that day because they were all inside because it was raining. They couldn't believe that he had come out. And he would tell them all the same thing. He goes, look, I have a brain tumor. I don't know how much time I have to live. I don't want to share something about that's very important to me in my heart. And he would share with these people. The brain tumor did come back. He ended up in Loma Linda right during an evangelistic meetings. We had to stay there, and he was down there. He started to share everything he had learned at AFCO with the doctors and with the nurses. He witnessed up to the last moment. God kept him alive. He could do nothing but speak at the end. He couldn't move anything. When he died, this is the only student that's died during that time of teaching at AFCO. When he died, totally revolutionized my entire AFCO class because the last words that Cass had shared were these. He kept talking about the time of trouble, and he said, look, if the time of trouble comes before I die, I'm not going to be able to walk there, so you guys are going to have to carry me. And then the next thing he said, last thing I remember him saying, guess what he said? You know what? I'm not going to be able to join you in the caves. I know that. And if I can't join you in the caves, promise me that I'll join you in the clouds. That became the phrase at AFCO. I might not be able to join you in the caves, but I want to meet you in the clouds. If we had that mentality, now what happened, what I saw, only four months of witnessing, John Bradshaw's last series as an Amazing Facts Evangelist was in that church. When John came to preach those meetings, guess who had showed up at the meetings? About 12 or 15 people who Cass had knocked on their door. They asked where he was. We told him that he was very sick and that he died. That dying witness brought those people into the kingdom. If we live as though we're about to die, Jesus died, that will lead people to see that we're serious about. And these 15 tips, these 15 things that Jesus did, will have an awesome power if our lives are being poured out for others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Lord, I just ask that these uh, truths of God's word would be applied in the context of, of ministry that's represented in this room and beyond, and that you could use the same concept you used again through surrendered lives. And we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.asiministries.org 
www.audioverse.org.